0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns. This is
1: Diplomates,
0: a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky.
1: G'day Diplomates fans. This week I caught up with Peter Harcher. Now Peter Hatcher is the political editor and international editor of The City Morning Herald and The Age. He's the author of numerous books, including Red Zone, which is actually one of my favorite books. There's a deep dive into the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping and what that means for the world. Now, i caught up Peter for a chinwag about the future of China under Xi, Australia's foreign policy choices, Yorker's sub-deal, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for Taiwan, and why autocracies are suddenly on the back foot around the world. It's a really, really great chat. I really want to thank Peter for coming on the show and being so generous with his time. Uh, It's a really fascinating conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. Enough jibbing from me. Please make sure you rate and review and enjoy the episode. Peter Harcher, welcome to Diplomates. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Michel. Uh, now, lots of places we could start. I thought an interesting place to begin, and you've written about it this week, is the protests in China. Now, what caused them and why are they more significant than perhaps other protests we've seen in China in the past?
0: The cause, I'd say, was an accumulation of frustrations. The most obvious and proximate was, of course, the COVID lockdowns, which have been more punishing on Chinese citizens than any other countries. But while you heard chants and demonstrations specifically naming COVID, you also heard lots of chants in a number of the major cities where the protests were going on, where they specifically called on the regime to remove either for the regime itself to collapse or for the president, Xi Jinping, to be removed. So it seemed to bleed over, and maybe that's the wrong word to use in a wrong metaphor (laughs) for a a, a demonstration where the police sometimes sometimes turned violent, but uh, it seemed to spill over from... COVID frustration into a broader anti-regime frustration, and that was most notable on university campuses.
1: Yeah, That's right. It's interesting um, people calling for Xi Jinping to stand down for denouncing the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, you never see typically that level of uh, outrage be directed directly at Xi.
0: That's very bold. Uh, On one of the university campuses, uh, 400 students actually put their names to a petition. Calling on him to resign. Uh, that is incredibly brave stuff. And those students know the risks they're taking. So it does indicate um, a level of frustration with the regime. The other thing that really, I really should mention is the economic slowdown. The economy, partly because of the COVID lockdowns themselves, but also partly because of policy choices that Xi Jinping has made to repress the role of the private sector and to increase the role of the state-owned sector has been to slow the economy to uh, what is for China recession-like levels of 2-3%. For a developing country with a population that big um, and such a, a growing number of young people coming into the job market every year, that's recession level, which is why youth unemployment has, has roughly doubled uh, in the last three years, so there's quite a lot of economic pain. There's a housing price collapse that's inflicted a lot of pain and anger in the middle classes of China. So that all has come together, uh, and that's a, that's a pretty serious collection of measures, and I think that of causes, and I think that helps explain the alacrity with which the regime started to ease some of the COVID restrictions. But it is interesting, isn't it, when you mention the uh, the <clears throat> sorry the slowdown.
1: This is the trade off, isn't it, in China, where for the last well, you know, thirty years, if you want to call it that, people trading away their political autonomy in exchange for economic advancement. Now, if economic advancement is not happening in China, what does Xi Jinping and the CCP have to offer the people of China? Um, and it is an interesting question.
0: Well, it's the, it's really the nightmare that a lot of foreigners and Chinese analysts. Uh, have talked about for many years that what does happen when the economic drive comes to an end because that's what we've seen or at least a pretty serious stalling and uh, it's what's happening is precisely what a lot of analysts forecast and that is that if the regime can't get its legitimacy as you say from economic growth which was the implicit pact with the people then it will turn increasingly uh, to nationalism And that's exactly what we see with uh, the increasing assertiveness and straight-out aggression in Chinese foreign and defence policy in the last few years. Mind you, the trade-off, it wasn't an exact trade-off because Xi Jinping was pushing a more aggressive uh, diplomatic and and defence policy before the economic slowdown. But the economic slowdown makes it uh, more imperative that he not only carry that forward, but deliver on it. And that, of course is Dangerous for world security, and you know, we'll talk about the security
1: implications. Just sticking with the economic thing, it is interesting because, uh, there's sort of two things happening in China, in my observation. One is that they've got macroeconomic headwinds relating to, for example, demography. You know, everyone's saying China will get old before it gets rich. Possibly already the case that China's population overall has fallen. Now, we don't know whether or not. Uh, Rumours of uh, falsified uh, census uh, is accurate, but of course numbers out of China are hard to believe generally. Uh, But uh, those things like that, even just generally the uh, labour dividend of workers joining the workforce, coming from rural areas into the urban areas, all these things are sort of slowing down, even just uh, extensive growth in terms of uh, new construction of housing and and, uh, all these uh, large cities. So all those sort of easier things to do are out of reach now to a degree. Mm. But at the same time, Xi Jinping has made the choice. This is a, so that's a kind of the headwinds that every, any country has structural problems. Then they've made the choice of busting down on their tech sector, uh, clamping down on their education sector, and ver- all these various ways that Xi, perhaps on, on an individual basis, might be some policy rationale for them. But overall a big chilling effect on their economy right around the time where as you head into this I guess that next wave of growth if you want to get through the so-called middle income trap become a high income per person economy mm. you've got to have innovation and he's sort of making all the innovative incentives i.e. you can get rich and be free etc. they're clamping them down at the exact
0: wrong moment it seems to me do you, you, you see that yourself? Or Yes I do Xi Jinping has made a clear decision that security and by which I mean security of the regime is paramount and economic growth is secondary or even a tertiary consideration. Remember Deng Xiaoping when he launched the economic modernization of China, which began in 1978, one of his most famous lines was, it is glorious to get rich. Now we have a president who says uh, that we need common prosperity. Mm. Uh, And not only is it inglorious to get rich, but he has made a very pointed lesson of some of China's biggest billionaires and most successful innovators, Jack Ma among them. Yeah,
1: he's the one that comes to mind. He, uh, he spoke out against the regime moderately, really, in a kind of financial sector sort of regulation question and then basically
0: disappeared. His great crime was, as you said in a speech, to complain about financial regulation. Right. He didn't mention the president of China or the political Class or the Communist Party, but that was enough. Right. That was enough. So instantly, uh, Xi Jinping forced the cancellation of the float of one of his greatest projects, Ant Financial Group, um, which would have been the biggest float anywhere in the world to that date. That was cancelled and remains cancelled. And then there was a series of regulatory clampdowns against his company and him personally. He's now living effectively in exile. So he, he, he issued a craven apology. Um, and now I think he was last seen living in Tokyo. Right. He doesn't dare go back to China. So he was one, but there have been many others. And the entire point of this is to demonstrate Xi Jinping's in control of everything, everyone, and no one dare breathe a word to challenge him. So it, not only is it a reversal of the primacy of um, markets, innovation, and entrepreneurs, but as you say, you've got those other factors which would have delivered China into the middle income trap in any case, and that's precisely where they are. They've just ticked over ten thousand US dollars per capita uh, annual GDP, so that is the definition that's the rough rule of thumb that, uh, you, you, that is used to measure to measure middle income right. ten thousand dollars. They've just ticked over it, they haven't hit 11 yet, and it looks like they're going to be stuck there.
1: Yeah, and it is a fascinating challenge because uh, you know, everyone for a long time has talked about this sort of linear growth of China. therefore at date X, China will be larger than the United States. We're actually maybe at the point right now where they'll never catch them. You know, when you even look at nominal growth rates, uh, they've got to grow much
0: faster than they are to ever catch the United States. Um. Yes, and the US is not facing uh, medium or long-term population decline. Uh, the US policy will depend, of course, a lot on who runs the country, mm. and that's a, that's a big question mark and a big risk uh, to everything about the future of the US, of course, uh, with the complete naughtiness, it, the fever that's gripped their political system. But we do know that, broadly speaking, um, the Americans have got a lot of uh, pro-growth factors. And although they're not going to grow at developing country rates, neither is the developing country known as China, based on uh, not only the, those long-term drivers that you mentioned now running out of puff, but also the, the deliberate policy choices. Mm. And I'd add one more to your list, Misha, which is um, Xi Jinping, his so-called dual circulation policy. Right which is just a fancy way of saying we're going to start decoupling a lot of our economy from the world economy. Uh, well, again, that runs counter to the good policy, the pro-growth policy that Deng Xiaoping introduced in from 1978. So it is a, a, a real um, concatenation of long-term structural factors that have delivered it to middle-income status. And then these policy uh, vandalistic choices, anti-growth choices that Xi Jinping has imposed because of the primacy of security and regime security above all.
1: And so Xi himself, he just got his third term, unprecedented, uh, you know, removed term limits at uh, the last Congress to allow himself to be re-elected at this Congress. He's now got another five years. You know, you've written a book about Xi, but about China, but you know, you've written a lot about China, but the red zone, you cover it off. But to your mind, you know, now that he has his third term, I mean, what, what does Xi Jinping want? Mm. You know, this is a big, the big question because it's not so much what the People's Republic of China want or what the people of China want. It's really about what Xi
0: Jinping wants. So yeah, what do you believe this man wants? Exactly right. And he's overridden. He's become the first leader since Mao to get three terms. Mm. So that, And that he's broken the system and rewritten the constitution to deliver that. So it is all about him. And to pretend otherwise to talk about structural factors or the party or whatever, they're all contributing factors, but this is primarily, as Kevin Rudd said, um, Xi Jinping is numero uno, due, tre, and (laughs) and everything else is detail. That's Mm. how Rudd put it. Um, What does Xi Jinping want? He wants, above all, to secure and hold power unchallengeably for as long as he possibly can. Uh, He sees power partly because of, or I would suggest largely because of the treatment of his family and his circumstances growing up during the Cultural Revolution, when Mao purged his father uh, and his family suffered horribly. His mother denounced him, right? It was an astonishing... For the Cultural Revolution, it was kind of a standard experience. Um, for uh, anybody outside China looking, looking at it, it was an astonishing experience one from which it shaped Xi Jinping's uh, entire uh, persona. Well, he understands what happens when you don't have power, right? You either have it or you don't. It was amazing uh, for a number of reasons. And, and it's also really important to point out that Xi Jinping is the first leader of communist China to grow up in the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, all the others were already adults. Um, he was the first to come through peak madness of the Mao regime and so he was uh, his father was locked up and purged Um, he was locked up several times he was had to wear the dunce's cap he had to do the self-criticisms and as you say in the crowds he would be on stage uh, wearing the heavy wooden board chained around his neck you know self-confessed class traitor and the many other <laughs> crimes of which everybody was was uh, accused in those times and his mother would be in the front row of the crowd chanting the denunciations against him when he was a teenager and then of course uh, ultimately he was sent off into a, a tiny village in the countryside where he lived in a cave uh for it was five six years i think a cave he had to share with uh some other exiles, full of lice, uh, uh, hungry the entire time. If they ever managed to get their hands on any meat, which almost never happened, they ate it raw because they were just so impatient for food. Um, And as Xi Jinping has told various interlocutors over the years, he thought about whether to end his life. Uh, He was so miserable. He escaped, got back to the city, as many of them did, of course. He was punished and sent back to the countryside. It was the full-on purge um, and the choice, you know, to many, to, to looking, looking ba- back at that, you'd think to yourself, well, you know, if the regime, if the Chinese Communist Party did that to, to your father, to your family, to you, his sister died in the middle of all this, by the way, pushed out a window, presumably. It's not known whether it was deliberate or not. But if this was the sort of experience you had as a youth, um, f- exposed to the full horrors of the dictatorship, wouldn't you think that might turn you against the Chinese Communist Party? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. As you're listing
1: it all there, you think to yourself, perhaps he's got the uh, the background to be the great liberator,
0: right? And his father was his father. As I've, I, I put it in the book, if Xi Jinping and his father were in a Westminster Parliament, they'd be sitting on opposite sides. That's mm, a parliament. fascinating point. Yeah, his father was a close friend of the Dalai Lama. Uh, he. Tried to reason against the Tiananmen Square massacre to prevent it. He camped. He camped in the Great Hall of the People for a week to try and prevent that massacre from happening. He was a politically tolerant. Um, he believed that uh, more—not our definition of free speech, but more robust, open debate—would be good for the regime and help develop good policy and good outcomes. So, in every respect, he was the opposite of his father politically, um, and yet. What we saw, the the, the fatal choice, fatal for uh, democracy, that is in China, that Xi Jinping made, confronted with this, was not to rebel against the regime, not to rebel against this horrible treatment, uh, and not to uh, take up his father's cause, but to see all of that as a lesson in the necessity of power. Mm. And he has devoted every waking moment since to cultivating power, uh, and he and people close to him have said this, and I've, I cover all this in detail in the book, but that that was the formative moment for him when he decided, I'm not going to let this system defeat me. I'm going to defeat it. I'm going to take the system on, not to uh, end it, but to master it and to run it for myself. It became his personal survival project. The Chinese Communist Party, and therefore the entire Chinese uh, modern nation, is the personal and family survival project for Xi Jinping? That's what he wants. This is a, a system where, as he learned as a as a as a boy, because the the Cultural Revolution began, I think he was only eight or nine. Um, as a boy and as a youth, he lived through this experience, and it formed him to be uh, to realise that uh, power or being on the wrong side of it is a life and death matter in in the Chinese Communist Party's China and he was going to be on the life side of it and if you slip it can literally be a matter of death and he's decided that he's going to he's got power and he's going to cling to it at any cost mm. and even his defense minister said just a couple of uh, maybe three four years ago at a Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore openly in front of the delegates he said uh, we did it once the Tiananmen Square massacre we would do it Again, it was a big success. That is the, the authentic voice of the regime, and that is exactly the sort of price that Xi Jinping would be prepared to pay on any scale to hold and keep power. Well, it's interesting that you make that comparison,
1: given that we've just had, I guess, the biggest protests in China since the Tiananmen Square, certainly the most vastly. It's not uncommon to have protests in China, but they tend to be localised around local issues and directed often at the local officials. Mm. Um the The one thing I always say when people sort of you know query you know being uh, you know concerned about the Chinese Communist Party, in particular the Xi Jinping, it's like, you don't have to listen to me or perhaps even listen to Peter Hart, you just listen to Xi Jinping, and mm-hmm. you know, listen to the man's words and what he's saying. and that you know as you put it out right there, they they are troubling, to say the very least. And one of the questions I want to ask, just following on from that, what's the role of ideology in Xi Jinping's China? Because, I think this is one of the least understood parts. So, yeah, people look at it in terms of hard power, or, you know, United States military versus Chinese military, uh, you know, trade and all these different, you know, tech. But ideology, it's almost, you know, 1989 happens, the West wins the Cold War, everyone sort of dusts their hands, walks off the field and go, well, that was great. And in many ways, right? But there was still a very, very large country Mm. that was perhaps opening up economically but not opening up politically and maintaining, certainly now with Xi in charge, a a very pure view of ideology as they constructed. So I'm curious about that. Mm. Maybe you can expand
0: about that because I know you talk about it in your book. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, um, the fall of the Soviet Union was the object lesson that the Chinese Communist Party took uh, in how... Not to lose power, and Xi Jinping himself has said that, this, that the Soviet Union fell because—and this is a direct quote—no one was man enough uh, to stand up and hold power for the for the Communist Party in Russia, and that's a mistake that they're never going. To, the Chinese Communist Party is never going to make. Ideology, you know, because we in the West haven't taken it seriously. We've just assumed there's only you know one real ideology which was ours and the Chinese were inevitably going to fall into it and the Chinese Communist Party pandered to that told us what we wanted to hear peaceful rise yeah
1: peaceful rise trying to become rich and democratic eventually at some stage maybe
0: that's right it was a it it painted itself as a benign power and it it could have evolved that way but of course it didn't and uh, ideology is is a primary concern for Xi Jinping he has said that ideology is the primary battlefield. The primary battlefield. That's how important it is to him. So if he thinks it's that important, we probably should pay some attention to it. Now, the cynical um, version is that the ideology is just a cover for, you know, a grab for some legitimacy to justify everything else that they're doing. Um, And, you know, uh, the West is not innocent in using ideologies to cover its own political urges and, and failures. So we you have to acknowledge in realistic terms that it, it is a bit of a cover story, but it's the essential cover story. And uh, when he talks about... Um, he has quoted Mao often in saying that the consolidation of... Uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics will take dozens of generations. Yeah, that's the long right. struggle against the West, as he puts it. That's right. Uh, so, so Mao called it, and Xi Jinping now calls it, a struggle that will last for, just think about that, dozens of generations. <laughs> this, is, this is not a man or a regime that's planning to turn away from what they call uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is their formula. Uh, for essentially um, party-directed, party-led, not only party-led economics, but party-led and party-directed everything. As Xi Jinping himself has said, the party is north, south, east and west. The it's one of the is things everything. that's poorly understood,
1: I think, in the debate is the primacy of the party, not the nation state, but the party. You know, and So when you criticise the Chinese Communist Party, I would say people, like, oh, it's, you know, perhaps there's racial undertones and I said, well, is it, is it racist to criticise the Australian Labor Party? Well, of course, that's a nonsense, right? But it it is one party running, it's captured a country and then running it in its own interest. And there are things that I think a lot of people don't know. For example, the People's Liberation Army is not, doesn't have fealty to the People's Republic of China. No. It reports to the Chinese Communist Party. And that's just one example, right, where... It's the it's the primacy and security of the party, but now increasingly, the leader um, as being the kind of foundation stone. So I think that's a really critical point. Well, Paul Keating uh, once
0: complained that you know there were too many, uh, uh, I suppose he would consider them hawks, whispering conspiratorially about the Chinese Communist Party and that they like to use the word communist because it paints them as a, a sort of sinister force. To which my response was, well, Paul, uh, persuade the Chinese Communist Party to change its name <laughs> because they've had plenty of opportunity and they've stuck with it, and proudly so. Right. So it is what they're called. It is what they call themselves, despite uh, what Paul thinks, and Paul's never come up with an alternative for them. He just doesn't like people actually calling it for what it is. But yes, you're absolutely right. The uh, party, you know, sinologists, you'll often hear them ca- calling China the party state. But, so they've taken two separate concepts, the party and the state. And most respected sinologists use the, use, fuse those two together and call it a party state, hyphenated. And the reason is that unlike just about any other country, where there is a separation between the state, which, is, which continues and is eternal regardless of which political group happens to occupy power at any particular time, and has institutions of the state which, and, a, and bureaucracy which will continue regardless of uh, who runs the place. Uh, China has no such system. There were flirtations with separating the party from the state at various points in the last 30 years. Uh, they've all been reversed, and Xi Jinping in particular has uh, ended those flirtations. The party and the state are fused as one. It is impossible to think about removing the party from the state because there is no independent state, organization, institutions. And the army, as you say, as you say, Michelle, is is the core. It's the core of the power, as Mao Zedong said, the party controls the gun, and power flows from the barrel of a gun. But it's not just the army. The army is the primary example. It's the entire system. Right. No, it's a very important
1: distinction that people need to make in their own minds, but it's hard. But the party, yeah, the CCP has deliberately fused the two to make oh, it yes. confusing. So they claim you know, feel ownership over uh, the history of China, the Chinese people, the Chinese diaspora around the world, and all these things, everything... So to criticise the Chinese Communist Party is to criticise Chinese people, Chinese culture, everything about it. And so I think it's very important to kind of split the two and understand that when, you, when you're when discussing it. And it's a discipline that I maintain for myself. But I want to turn to Australia's relationship uh, with the People's Republic of China and Xi Jinping at the G20. So Australia's been in the freezer, diplomatic mm-hmm. freezer. We have not been able to get a meeting for about four years uh, with any senior leader, forget about... Uh, President to Prime Minister. Now, at the G20, uh, Prime Minister Albanese met with Xi Jinping, and you described this as a capitulation of a great
0: power. Now, I'm curious about that term and and why do you describe it in those terms? It was a capitulation by China because China started uh, a, a very systematic episode in breaking Australia's sovereign will. That's what it was about. And the first part of it, as you've said, was a political freeze a freeze on any political contact between the Chinese regime and Australia so officials level contact was allowed so embassies you know talk to each other and all the rest of it embassies talk to bureaucracies in the capitals but there was no political contact allowed uh, and the the really uh, pointed crunchy part of it of course were the trade sanctions which were levied on at least twenty billion dollars worth of Australian exports to China and that was very political and very deliberate and an extension of that was uh, the Chinese system used uh, its diplomacy around the world as well as in, a, in the, in the uh, media organs that it controls to paint a picture, tell a story and a narrative of Australia, which was very hostile to Australia's interests. And Australians didn't hear a lot of that, but it was constant. Mm-hmm. In all the diplomatic gatherings around the world and with all of China's friendly states, it was a constant um, that is a pretty concerted effort, and that went on, as you say, for, for years. And then one day it didn't. Mm. One day the president of China says, Oh, let's have a meeting. <laughs> and the initiative for that meeting came from Beijing, came from the Chinese side. Mm. And in that meeting that Xi Jinping had with Anthony Albanese in Bali, the Chinese side made no demands, no requests. There were no asks on the Australian side whatsoever. In the same week, Xi Jinping was bullying uh, and humiliating the Prime Minister of Canada, for example, Justin right. Trudeau. He was going out of his way. He hosted the meeting for Albanese uh, and was said only the most positive things and flattered Albanese personally. Now, that wasn't really – oh, and of course, I forgot one of the, the main elements of the Chinese campaign against Australia – it was the 14 demands. Right, the,
1: the list of grievances. Yes. The list
0: of 14 demands on Australian sovereignty reinforced by the trade sanctions. And that's, that was all abandoned. Australia made zero concessions, not one of those 14. Uh, and the Morrison government can take credit as well as the Albanese government. Neither government made the least concession to the Chinese on any of that stuff. And yet Xi Jinping agreed to this make, make nice meeting Uh, And we can expect to see uh, relaxation of a range of those sanctions and punishments. You know, in the years, in the months to come, it was a complete capitulation. There was no concession by the Australian side, and that was a pretty important achievement. And um, no less a person than Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, has said that it was a very powerful message that Australia sent. That Australia taught the world. Yeah, it's interesting actually because I've been
1: travelling around the world for the last year, a year and a half, looking at these issues. And uh, a lot of the people that I talked to trying to learn about you know, what we can do in terms of resisting autocracies, et cetera, say, well, what can Australia teach everybody? It's quite interesting that we've been seen to be at the bleeding edge, as it were, uh, not to use that term again, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, of, of this resistance. And, and I think Australia's done very well. Both governments, I think, can be congratulated. But turning to a different dictator, um, one that I'm very familiar with over the last year, Vladimir Putin. But specifically Chi and Putin, and this, uh, this partnership of no limits uh, that they signed at the Beijing Olympics, it, how significant was that you, in your mind in terms of bringing, I guess, into the open? Because for a long time I was always trying to link these guys and I think a lot of us were. You know, you'd certainly do that through your work. But people are like, well, one's a European theatre and one's a you know, Pacific theatre. And is this really a glo- – you know, Joe Biden has been trying to say – the modern struggle is about democracies versus autocracies and had the Democracy Summit at the end of 2021. So how big a deal was this, uh, no partnerships, and how
0: much of a role did it play in Putin's invasion of Ukraine? It's maybe not been important to the initial invasion itself, but it's been essential to the Russian regime's ability to survive and to remain fiscally viable while it wages war. Um... It's only because primarily China, but also India, have stepped up to fill the void left by other oil buyers. China has bought massive quantities of oil, vastly more than it ever has bought, from Russia, specifically to support... I mean, it's, it's a good deal for China. At a discount. Yeah, it's go a good right. deal for China. Yeah, right. $30 or so off the, off the market price of a barrel of oil. But it's also... Uh, been a direct infusion of cash into the Russian economy and the Russian state to help finance the war machine that it's waging uh, in Ukraine. So it has been central. Uh, uh, you get a lot of people uh, parsing Xi Jinping's words, looking at the rhetoric. Oh, is he is he distancing himself from Putin now? Is he is he you know more critical of Putin? Is he? Don't look at the words. Look at where the dollars go. That's the most sincere expression of political intent. And everything that China has done has been supportive economically of Putin. So it's been essential to the the war effort and continues to be essential to the war effort as the sanctions that the West operates against Russia. First, they're cumulative. Second, uh, they're intensifying. And we see that uh, right now with the the, price price cap on Russian oil exports imposed by all of Europe. As well as the G7 and Australia, uh, and a bunch of those sanctions, by the way, haven't even begun to really take effect yet. So, for example, the fact that more than ninety percent of the entire civil fleet of aircraft in Russia depends on foreign is foreign aircraft and depends on foreign parts. Well, as the foreign parts, as the parts wear out and need replacement, the West isn't going to be sending any. Uh, so, planes will have to be grounded or fall out of the sky. So, things like that are going to be cumulative, and China we're going to see uh, increasingly whether China is uh, is prepared, how far China is prepared to go to keep that system, that country and that regime afloat.
1: Well, it is an interesting question because it it goes both ways. On the one hand, there's, uh, I guess, political damage to the Chinese regime in propping up Putin. Uh, And I think you saw them, and I take your point about what they do versus what they say, but the humiliation of Putin where he was forced to sit there and read out, this piece of paper where he was acknowledging the concerns that you know, the Chinese didn't do anything by accident. You know That meeting could have been held behind closed doors. I know you'll sit here and take your medicine. Uh, mm. So, But for the Russians, they've got a choice to make as well, which is either they end this war, probably need to get rid of Putin, or face becoming a North Korea, basically, or become a client state of the Chinese Communist Party, not a partner not a junior partner a client state Mm. and that's unthinkable for the russians when you look back to the soviet union the chinese with the junior partner and so that's a i think an underexplored issue that i think will start to get currency uh in russia itself as the chinese leviathan starts to get its tentacles around the russian state i think that'd be quite a problem for putin i think as he tries to maintain political support now this is a question everyone always asks me, so I want to ask you this question. Taiwan. You can't mm-hmm. really mention China, Xi Jinping, Putin, Ukraine without Taiwan coming in. it. of course, yeah, Taiwan being a you know, democracy of 23 million people is an island nation. I see a lot of uh, familiarity w- with Australia given, you know, they're being menaced by the Chinese Communist Party, much closer, obviously, uh, but they are a democracy. Yeah. Do you think as a result of Ukraine, so a lot of people are saying, well, you know, you're going to see Taiwan invaded tomorrow. Right? Mm. Uh, do you think it's more likely, less likely about the same, flowing from the events that we've seen this year in, in 2022 in Ukraine by Putin? I think
0: the likelihood of a Chinese mainland invasion of Taiwan is exactly the same that it was. Uh, and this is something that Xi Jinping has his heart set on. And to be fair, it's not just him, it's the entire Chinese Communist Party. Whether Uh, by fair means or foul, they will take possession of Taiwan. The only formal public deadline that he's he's enunciated is 2049. right? Which is 100 years of the
1: the People's People's Republic of China being created. That's
0: right. But I think uh, it's the consensus of sinologists in the West, at least, that Xi Jinping will be very anxious to deliver that in his own lifetime and in his own time as president, and how old is Xi Jinping? Um, oh, you've got me there. I can't. I think tell. he's late sixties. I think he's about seventy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so old? Yeah, he's not. He's not a spring chicken any right. longer. Yeah.
1: So, twenty twenty seven is the figure that a lot of people point the the date a lot of people point to because this is the so called pivot point between U.S. Uh, uh, military strength and Ch- Chinese military strength tend to sort of intersect at this point uh, whilst the Americans are trying to catch up, uh, but it's hard to fill that gap in terms of production deadlines, etc.
0: Well, that's the way that um, the West might look at it. We have to think about how Xi Jinping will look at it and his political needs in the interim, and especially because we touched on it before, but if the implicit bargain has collapsed, and that is, we will tolerate your regime as long as you improve our living conditions, if that is broken down, then his political needs change and an assertive nationalist foreign and defense policy becomes more important and more urgent to him. So we have to think about how he sees it. So I would say that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia hasn't changed at all the timetable, the likelihood, or the political need for the Chinese Communist Party to to deliver on what has been a cherished, enunciated goal of the party for decades. I would say, though, that it's changed the nature of the invasion. I would say that um, the Chinese regime is studying the invasion closely to learn the lessons uh, of what's going on and may well have delayed any, any uh, invasion plan that may be at the, at the back of the mind of Xi Jinping. It will no doubt dispense, as every, every war does, a lot of lessons. Right. And Xi Jinping's people are studying that carefully and they will try to draw the conclusions which they can then apply to if they can't get it by peaceful means aggressive means in seizing Taiwan. No,
1: and it is an interesting one because if you were to get a consensus from people around the world to say, well, which, uh, who can hang on longer, Taiwan against China or Ukraine against Russia? Now, everyone said Russia was going to knock over Ukraine inside 24 hours. Now, no one would have thought if there was a hostile war in the Taiwanese Strait that Taiwan would definitely last longer than 24 hours would be the consensus. And so... It's interesting that wars aren't fought on paper and the PLA has not fought anybody in a very, very long time. And so that is where I think, from where I sit, I think you look at the cost to Putin at this point versus what was on the table for him via the minsk dual Accords, which basically kept Crimea some sort of autocracy, sorry, autocracy, autonomy for the uh, Donbass so-called separatist regions, whatever might look like a deal now that might potentially be in his grasp. He had that without all the humiliations and disasters that have flowed from that invasion so I just wonder whether or not she's looking at Putin thinking "Mm, but for the grace of God there go I and uh, and and rethinking and it's you know a maritime border much more difficult uh, tidally it's hard to take and and urban warfare so all sorts of problems I actually think I don't know what your take on this I I was actually thinking a lot more about the prospect of a blockade of Taiwan Mm. rather than an invasion and, and whether or not that would change the
0: calculus. And certainly a lot of analysts think that's possible. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Xi Jinping's regime has used effectively what are trade blockades a number of times already. You get uh, some that are are delivered through trade sanctions like the ones Australia was subject to. But uh, remember, it just needs to send one of its uh, fishing fleets, one of its grey zone operations... To increase the risk to shipping in an area of ocean, to effectively deter imports and exports, and uh, it's used that, for example, against the Philippines, uh, in, on brief only briefly, but from time to time. What's to stop it doing the same against Taiwan? Um, who's going to stop the Chinese fishing fleet? Now, when you say fishing fleet, that suggests to your imagination, you know, some little. Uh, low-slung wooden boats with, you know, nets out the back and a few people in the cabin. The Chinese uh, regime's fishing fleet are thousands of tonnes of steel uh, which travel together, uh, two, three hundred mass in a group, lash themselves together, um, and usually, by the way, travel with their transponders off so they can't be observed, and make up pretext for why they need to anchor in a particular spot, as they've done a number of times, and just effectively put a blockade. I mean, what does Australia do tomorrow if the Chinese regime starts operating grey zone risks in our northern approaches? Uh, It may be the fishing fleet. It may be the fishing administration vessels. It may be the Coast Guard. It may be the Navy. And the Chinese have used all those fleets in combination to get various effects of intimidation. What does Australia do if that happens tomorrow, and what does Taiwan do if it happens tomorrow? If it's it's not a military vessel, it's something else. Right. Uh, but the Chinese government may decide to hold military exercises nearby. Would they just, do that after Pelosi visit, right? Europe? It's just it's just it's just exercises, and we're given normal routine warning of it. Um, it's only temporary. But, of course, no shipping or commercial aircraft will go near the area because they can't get insurance, even if they're prepared to take the risk, they won't go there. And what if the exercises are extended, not a week or two, but a month or two? Um, what does that do to supply of fuel and food to Taiwan right. or right, or to Australia or any other island country? So these are all existing tools. That the Chinese regime uses, and we should expect them to be used increasingly, in service of their enunciated goals. And so, well,
1: you've now talked about Australia's northern approaches. Now, as we speak, uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and the Deputy Prime Minister, Defence Minister Richard Miles, are doing Osmin meeting mm-hmm. um, in Washington. On the agenda will be AUKUS. Now, why is this so significant? And uh, you know. Before we get to the challenges, why is this such a big deal mm. and, and and what is it trying to address in you know, other things that you just mentioned in terms of Australia's maritime security, particularly obviously AUKUS has other dimensions, but a lot of the focus is on submarines at this point.
0: Mm. The significance of it is uh, there are many different implications and many different bits and pieces, but the overriding central point is this. At the moment, Australia has no ability to threaten China. Nuclear... Submarines, nuclear powered submarines, not nuclear armed, but carrying cruise missiles, conventional armed but nuclear powered, would give Australia for the first time the ability to directly threaten China. China's mainland, uh, China's military bases, even its civilian infrastructure. That would be new. That would be obviously would change the fundamental equation between Australia and China. And it's welcomed, of course, by the US and the Brits who see the rising aggression, not the rise of China, but the rising aggression from China as a threat to planetary security, the entire security of the world. Uh, They welcome that because it would allow Australia to operate as a part uh, of their efforts to hold China at risk if China holds their countries and assets at risk. And so,
1: I mean, that is an interesting point about uh, you know, how the United States and the U- UK see. It. But I think it particularly the ability to uh, inflict kinetic military threat on a potential aggressor is important. I've, seen, I've sort of seen that in Ukraine, where essentially Ukraine's been denied any weaponry to be able to hit Russia in Russia. So they're very reasonably well armed now in terms of attacking Russians in Ukraine. Mm. But the inability to take the war to the Russian front, I think... Now, there's good reasons why uh, the NATO allies and Australia aren't arming them with these weapons because, of course, Putin may then, of course, say this is an attack on Russia by NATO. So the I understand, but going back a step, had Ukraine had this weaponry you know, before the war started, it may have changed Putin's calculus. So I think of you know, Churchill. One of the first things he did was got British bombers to bomb Berlin, not because it's going to change the course of the war. Of course it wasn't. There's a long way between... Uh, London and Berlin, France and other parts of Europe to get through. But it was to show that Germans weren't safe at home and that the consequences of war brought consequences to the home front. And I think that there's an important element of that that you're sort of touching on there in the ability.
0: It shifts the balance of risks for an aggressor. If the victim country has the ability to hold you directly, your people, your installations at risk, and that's entirely what the AUKUS decision is all about. And so the decision
1: I think we both thoroughly agree with, the how of getting it done is a problem or a challenge. Um, the United States, let's say, for example, there's a lot of talk of Australia... Well, we want to see them built in Australia because that's an important sovereign capability, but that will probably take 20 years mm. at best. Yeah, you know, For those that can't uh, see... Peter's smiling at me. Uh, <laughs> it's a heroic... Well, let's say it was 20 years. That's a problem. That's I'm a not long.
0: disagreeing with you. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's a long
1: way away, right? Yes. Uh, even uh, acquiring submarines directly from the United States, if we are going to buy a Virginia class uh, directly from the United States, right now they can't produce enough of them fast enough to the, satisfy the US Navy's demands. So how do we deal with this near-term challenge, as a long-term challenge, Yeah. You know, at, at, it's a very tricky policy problem when you actually unpack it. And, of course, Richard's going to be announcing something in March next year around this, but I'm sure mm-hmm. he's thinking about it and talking about it right now with his American counterparts. Yes, I'm sure he
0: is. It's the central point of this uh, OSMIN meeting. The the way around it, uh, you've described it as a pol- tricky policy problem. Overwhelmingly, though, I think it's a tricky political problem, and the, the solution will be political. It's going to come down to uh, political will and money, cash. So the Americans have the capacity uh, to... They could either uh, interrupt or um, digress from their current timetable of production. Uh, now, the Virginia class is coming to the end of its um, production life before they move into the so-called, you know, the new X sub Yeah, whether or it. not that ends up being some
1: sort of joint UK... Yeah, with it's like the joint strike fighter approach to yeah. to the submarines. Uh, yeah, we know. don't we don't know about that, but right.
0: but the Americans have the capacity either to divert some of their existing subs coming off the Virginia class production line uh, to sell, let, um, lease, lend, whatever uh, some of their existing ones to Australia uh, for joint operation purposes initially, or uh, to open another shipyard. Now, that is very costly, but it's entirely within the capacity of the U.S. to do it. It would require a lot of political will and a lot of cash, and the Congress would have to support it, and presumably Australia and maybe the Brits, I don't know, uh, would need to cough up a lot of that cash. But it can be done. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a logistical problem. Uh, it, all, of, all of the ability to do that exists. It's essentially a Straight question cash. of political yeah. will, And there are voices in the two countries' systems arguing about whether this can be done and should be done. Well,
1: there was a third third shipyard was uh, contemplated as part of the infrastructure bill. It was in various iterations as things were negotiated through the United States Senate. Sorry, this is a boring lesson, everyone, for history of 2021 politics, but... Uh, in the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, there was a third shipyard that never made its way into the final bill. It was also in one of the original iterations of the so-called Build Back Better Bill, which then became the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act and uh, whatever it's ended up with. But again, it didn't end up in there. Um, that, that's but-
0: good. You're a very close student of American legislation. Though. <laughs> that's impressive. It's
1: impressive. A sign of a misspent youth or something. I don't know. It's, uh, but... Uh, I think that that is probably one of the neatest solutions to deal with the near term challenge. So it looks something like a lease, releasing something in the, in the near term to learn, uh, buying off the shelf in the medium near term, so towards the end of this decade, so that we can get an, an Australian-flagged uh, nuclear submarine in the water, and then learning how to build them as we go. It has to be something like that. But you're right, it's going to be eye-wateringly costly for a country that remains in deficit. Um, so it's real tough challenges ahead in that space absolutely now the last question i wanted to ask you before we get to uh, the world famous uh, barbecue question that everyone just tunes in for i know everyone's actually just skipped ahead to it right now but um you know you and i've spoken a lot about this you write a lot about this this is what this show is really about Uh, democracy versus autocracy and for those that uh, have been listening to my show or written, read the things that I've been writing, I've been doing a lot of hand-wringing about this question, really, for, well, really, I think, the better part of, since the last middle of the last decade, really, is I think when uh, the game started to really come on. But you might even draw the line at uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea, but you can go back further if you want. But, you know, certainly over the last five years, at a minimum, perhaps 10, it's gotten worse for, if you want to call it the good guys. Now, are you feeling bullish or bearish after our conversation we've just had about that struggle? Because um, you, know, you rightly point out troubling things in the United States politics, which is you know, I call it the captain of Team Democracy or well, the quarterback. You know, without them, we're stuffed. Uh, and so, you know, there are challenges, and you know, you see these uh, nationalist waves not just there, but you know, UK with Brexit, uh, France with Le Pen. But the system is broadly held, and it held yet again in the last midterms in the United States just a month ago. So, I guess not to try to shape your answer, but I've just: Do you feel bullish or bearish about this struggle as we go forward into the next few years, but even longer? This this long, multi generational struggle that Xi Jinping's describing.
0: Yes, well, we're on the other side of that struggle, right. and the number of democratic states is shrinking year by year, as you know. Um, since 2007, there's been a so-called democratic recession. The number of countries listed by the Economist Intelligence Unit, for example, as fully democratic is down to 21 countries. Um, about 10%, really, for of yes. countries that exist, give or take. Exactly. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, bracing to think about. And I'd, I'd throw in a couple of, couple of thoughts. Um, it has been worse in 1941, it got down to just a dozen free democracies in resisting global fascism, and yet and yet we prevailed. Freedom, human liberty prevailed. So um, it's, it's not necessarily a death sentence for democracy. I know Joe Biden frames it, as you've said, as a contest between democracy and autocracy. I don't think that's the best way to frame it. I think the best way, uh, because you wanna bring in countries that are autocrats, are autocracies, but share our strategic interest in preserving our sovereignty and our liberty. Vietnam is the standout example because it's also run by a an enduring Chinese, uh, sorry, an enduring communist party, uh, very much like the Chinese one. Um, sovereignty, I think, should be the frame through which we see it retaining a country's sovereign ability to make choices for itself and not being prey, not subject to uh, the whims and demands of a great power. And all countries can uh, put a value on sovereignty, all countries can rally under the flag of sovereignty, whereas not many any longer can rally rally under the flag convincingly of democracy. So I would I, I think that's the more useful way so it's really talking about, a classic balance of power situation. Mm. Which countries can coalesce in which groups, how and when, to prevent a takeover of the world system by one or two fascist autocracies? And that's what, what I'm talking about is China It is interesting, Russia.
1: this question of sovereignty, particularly the way that... Uh, and I think that's well put because it, otherwise... And I think when they were constructing the, the, the Democracy Summit, they started to say, well, do you invite Vietnam? They're an important sort of uh, swing actor in the region... Singapore, are they you know, And so you start to go down this sort of mm-hmm. problematic who your friends are, who your imperfect friends are. And I mm-hmm. think you're right around. It's also the exporting of the ideology uh, and, and the Chinese Communist Party essentially trying to shape the world to be safe for the Chinese Communist Party. And so almost turn the world into a right. tributary system, everything pointing upwards to the CCP sitting atop of it, which obviously we don't want. But it is interesting, that sovereignty question, because it really draws a pretty sharp line now between Putin and Xi, because China's been telling us for so long that, you know, one China policy, sovereign borders are, you know, the ultimate red line that can't be crossed. And yet here they are backing Putin's invasion of another sovereign nation, a neighboring nation. I think that that is a an interesting area that I think again is one we can prize these
0: uh, these two apart I think I mean how do you see that yes well it makes a mockery uh, in fact a number of Chinese government policies in recent years or Chinese party state policies in recent years have made a mockery of their claim about the sanctity of sovereign borders the way they've uh, just annexed territory maritime territories uh, and reefs and islands which have entitled them to large swathes in their mind of the South China Sea. That just makes a mockery, uh, even before you get to the Russian case of their supposed sanctity of sovereign borders. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's a joke. It's simply a hypocrisy, and I suppose we shouldn't be shocked at nation-states using hypocrisy. We're all guilty of it from time to time. And.
1: There's actually one final, final question I want to get in before we get to the barbecue question. This question it came up in the election, our federal election in uh, in May of this year, Mm. and it was and we saw Chinese Australians swinging towards the Labor Party because of the rhetoric of the Liberal Party at that time. So how do we deal with this challenge of yeah we've got give or take maybe a million uh, Chinese Australians or Strains of Chinese ethnicity. And of course, they're not monolithic. Uh, some are Taiwanese, some are mainlanders, some are pre-89 after. So it's, it's a, you know, a, a very a kaleidoscopic uh, a cohort. But how do we neatly deal with the challenge of standing up to the Chinese Communist Party, asserting Australia's sovereignty in the ways you described in our values, but at the same time, making sure we're enfranchising, not disenfranchising, uh, the Chinese diaspora? Because... Yeah, you know, The way I see it, uh, it's critical uh, for Australia to, to make sure that they feel rightly part of the, of the Australian community. So how do we deal with that?
0: And where did the so coalition
1: get it wrong? I suppose the Morrison government get it wrong.
0: So the, Australia has two equities, don't we? We have the equity of preserving our sovereignty from attempts by a fascist foreign power to exert, exert control mm-hmm. over us. And the other equity is uh, to keep the unity and harmony of our country, of our people. And that means that we not only have to accept, tolerate, and, and, uh, you know, value the Chinese-Australian people, as you say, there's about 1.3 million of them. We have to go further. We have to celebrate them and uh, really make sure that we look after them because not only are they a part of our country and one of our country's great historic mistakes, I think, was... um, the beginning of the White Australia policy, a policy from which I think we are still recovering if you look at the lost, even if it's just the economic opportunities from the development of Northern Australia that Chinese Australians were were undertaking before they were forced out, as well as Malays, Japanese and others were all forced out. And now we've got a Northern Australia development fund cooked up in Canberra, which doesn't seem to develop much. Uh, So we're still recovering from that historic mistake of, of racial discrimination. If we make any racial discrimination in this case, we should be uh, honouring and celebrating Chinese Australians and making a point of it. Um, Now, you know, Morrison said the right things. He, a number, on many occasions, he actually visited Chinese communities, Chinese Australian communities, made very positive remarks, made uh, solid speeches, Um, but then he lost, lost focus on it and then they got very excited with beating up on the Chinese Communist Party as the election drew nearer. And the subtlety uh, or the distinction between those two positions was lost on yeah. the Australian Chinese community, which just felt anxious, anxious that they were going to be g- held guilty by association with the regime in Beijing, uh, fearful for themselves. They That community, um, we have to remember this, they are actually the primary victims and targets of the regime. The regime in Beijing sees them working through this institution of Chinese, the Chinese state called the United Front Working Department, makes a specific state policy and party policy of pursuing those people to use them as uh, part of the party's influence in foreign countries, including our country. They need to feel protected from that. The Chinese-Australian community needs to know that the Australian people, the Australian state... We'll protect them. And we've started that. Some of the uh, Morrison governments, actually uh, it was the Turnbull government, began with the Foreign Interference and Espionage uh, Acts that started to build some protections against that. Uh, good beginning. We need to enforce that. We need to put more money into it. The agencies need to uh, focus harder on it. And all of us need to make sure that the Chinese-Australian community is embraced because it's, it's central to the harmony, success, and the future of our country,
1: and also hopefully one day they're the sort of uh, people that can advocate for our values within China.
0: Well, a lot of them came to Australia in the first place because they valued what Australia right. has to offer, including its liberties and its democracy. As, long as my family, my family left you know, the Soviet Union
1: to come to. Well, I think we're trying to get to the United States, but ended up in Australia's slightly <laughs> different tea tour. But
0: <laughs> Well, my family was uh, – the, the earliest to arrive in Australia was an Irish convict girl, um, and, and then there was a German side, and they came to seek economic opportunity. Uh, they all ended up coming here uh, to, to embrace what Australia had to offer, and a lot of that is the liberty and opportunity that we offer, and the Chinese, Australian citizens, not all, most, maybe almost all, The same, right?
1: Now, I've been uh, teasing this out a number of times now, but we are going to get to the barbecue question. It's always a clunky segue because we go from talking about (laughs) geopolitics, you know, global power, ideological struggle, and then suddenly hard hitting into uh, a a very important question about the guests. So, three foreigners, alive or dead, at Peter harch's place for a barbecue. Who are they and why? Well, here's a, here's a handy
0: segue for you, Michelle. Um <laughs> I think we need, and I would love to hear from uh, per- personally, you know, firsthand, hear from somebody who understands, who can tell us about how to deal with this precise problem that humanity is facing, which is the rise of the return, really, of fascism and the extinction of human liberty around the world. That's the threat. That's what's going on. So you know, there's the bloke with your with your uh, na- your namesake in Ukraine. Zelensky's a bit busy with fighting <laughs> fighting autocrats, hand to hand combat. So I thought Winston Churchill um, is somebody who could speak to to our time from his time and his experience. I think plus he's, he was kind of a crazy guy,
1: could be entertaining. I think company. he would be great entertaining at a barbecue. At a barbecue, you need plenty of. Uh- Booze, I think, to keep him happy. But You wouldn't even get him in without no, uh, well, a few whiskeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he,
0: he, he drank scotch in the bathtub. That's um, right. But also, uh, I would also want Jesus along at my barbie. Um, quite apart from his place as, as the saviour, he is also a great philosopher and uh, the, the primary champion of humanity. Um, and I'd love to have him at the barbie. He was also a fascinating, uh, rebellious character, as well as, uh, as well as a great philosopher. But also, um, to round out the trio, if a trio can be round, um, I'd want. This is just a personal favourite. Uh, no geopolitics here. Uh, Beethoven. No right. Uh, because he was a crazy guy. Another crazy guy. <laughs> I think he'd be fascinating, a genius, and you know maybe he could. We could get him in his pre-deafness phase, and he could perform for us. I don't know.
1: Well, I think uh, Winston Churchill, Beethoven, and Jesus Christ is uh, one hell
0: of a barbecue, mate. (laughs) Well, I'll be busy cooking the snags uh, (laughs) while they have while they hold some fun debates and maybe whistle a few tunes. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't know who'd
1: get the most uh, in there between Jesus and Churchill. I'm not sure who said more words uh, or wrote more things. But um, look, Peter Hatcher, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, please keep up the good work and For those of you who haven't read it, uh, make sure you get yourself a copy of Red Zone. It's a fantastic book. Well, thanks, and thanks for all your work. Cheers. See you next time, mate. Thanks so much to Peter Harcher for coming on the show. If you enjoyed that episode, obviously check out Peter's book, Red Zone. Also check out his writing in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. If you haven't already done so, please do your homework, rate and review. Now, got a question here from another Peter. Peter has asked me, uh, "Do the midterm results mean that Trump uh, will be president or not be president?" Well, I think we sort of talked about this before, uh, but basically, I think Trump's cooked. And uh, look, I've said that in the past, but you know, actually, people like to remind me uh, that uh, I said Trump would win the twenty sixteen election. That is true. But I also said he would lose the 2020 election. So, And I also uh, believe that the Democrats will do quite well at the midterm. So two out of three ain't bad. But what I would say is that I think Trump is just weakening significantly. I think the problem with Trump now is that he's talking about his own grievances, not other people's grievances. So when Trump was good in 2016 and uh, yeah, a strong political figure he was giving voice to grievances uh, particularly in the rust belt states manufacturing workers etc that felt left behind he's no longer doing that he's basically a crazy uncle talking about election conspiracies and i think what you saw at the last election in midterms was that crazy conspiracy was on the ballot and it lost so i think uh I think that is going against Trump. And also I just think the fact of something being new, he's no longer new, he's old, new, he's been around a long time now, uh, exhausting people. So I think people are fatigued by him. And even those that like, uh, that are you know, favourably disposed to Trump uh, don't want him to be president again. So I think, you know, and unfortunately he just continues to sink to new lows with these meetings with uh, you know, white supremacists and other things. So I think it's just going further and further to the fringe, is actually going to make him unelectable. The question is, can he secure the nomination? I actually don't think he can get that either. I think everyone's talking about DeSantis. I actually think Glenn Youngkin um, is the name that I would be looking at. Now, DeSantis is a dominant figure at this point, but the thing I always say about this, and I've got a bet with some mates about um, whether or not it'll be Trump, whether or not it'll be DeSantis, is that uh, at the last... uh, 2016 Republican primary, the leader at this point of the cycle was a different Republican governor from Florida, a bloke by the name of Jeb Bush, low energy Jeb, as uh, Trump so brutally named him. So, being the front runner and having a lot of money in disposal is not necessarily uh, going to mean that you are going to win. You know, the front runner doesn't win. In fact, the front runner, off, front runner often loses. So, I think. I'd be very cautious in saying that DeSantis is in home and hose. I think just what it shows is that there is, other than Trump, is an increasingly popular choice. And I think the other thing to look for, and this is getting deep into it, but uh, you did ask, Peter, So, uh, and it's my show. But I think what's interesting is that the Republicans are looking to change the rules of their primary. Now, the way that the primary system works, uh, obviously every candidate runs. and the reason why Trump did well last time uh, was that – they have winner-takes-all primaries. So Trump was commanding the biggest share, but he never really went above 30%. But if you have 30% in a field of 16, very difficult for anyone else to overcome that. So he was just racking up delegates from state to state. And by the time uh, it whittled down, he was just too far ahead. The Democratic primary system, on the other hand, gives them proportional. So basically... Roughly, If you have 30% of the vote, you get 30% of the delegates. And that keeps others in the game for longer. And so a longer, more drawn-out process would be worse for Trump, it would not allow him to dominate uh, the Republican early states in the way that he did last time. And it also would probably mean that his ceiling would come into play. So if he can't get himself above 20 30 even 40%, if you get down to a two-horse race, Uh, it would be difficult for him to win. So I think that's one thing to watch for. So anyway, enough gibbering from me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please continue to support Ukraine however you can. And uh, bye for now. See you next time.
0: You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favourite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.